Our second reading this morning comes from the 13th chapter of Mark's Gospel. We'll begin reading with verse 24. Let us give ear to, to this reading that we might hear the whisper of God for us. But in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out his angels and gather the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. But also when you see these things taking place, you will know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that hour, day or hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to keep, be on the watch. Therefore keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or at cockcrow or at dawn, or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, I say to all. Keep awake. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. For the first Sunday of Advent, the lectionary always tees up the second coming of Christ. This year, it's Mark's telling. We begin the Advent season with stories of trumpet blasting and Jesus riding the clouds and the world coming to an end. Merry Christmas. <laughs> it was March of 1968. President Johnson surprised many when he stated, I will not seek, nor will I accept, the nomination of my party for another term as your president. In 1796, President Washington said the same. He, or his speechwriter Alexander Hamilton, said it this way. Friends and fellow citizens, the period for a new election of a citizen to administer the executive government of the United States being not far distant, and the time actually arrived when your thoughts must be employed in designating the person who is to be clothed with that important trust, it appears to me proper, especially as it may conduce to a more distinct expression of the public voice, that I should now apprise you of the resolution I have formed to decline being considered among the number of those out of whom a choice is to be made. See? Same as Johnson. It's just nobody talks like George Washington anymore. And if you were to talk that way, people might think it a bit strange. 
However, to assume that Washington, with his strange way of speaking, has nothing to say, well, that would be quite foolish. And his address is actually read on the Senate floor every year, marking the first president's birthday. In a favorite passage from King Lear, the king is unable to escape a rainstorm. The king was unaccustomed to inconvenience, but now being pelted with rain, it caused him to think of those for whom such an experience is commonplace. He reflected, poor naked wretches, wheresoe'er you are, that by the pelting of this pitiless storm, how shall your houseless head and unfed sides, your looped and windowed raggedness, defend you from seasons such as these? Oh, I have taken too little care of this. Nobody talks like that anymore. But to suggest that Shakespeare and his strange talk have nothing to say, well, that would be quite foolish, wouldn't it? The Gospel of Mark reads, but in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be dark, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man right coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send out his angels and gather the elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. But keep awake, for you do not know when he is coming. <laughs> okay, I added the <laughs> But nobody talks like this anymore. This is apocalyptic language found not only in the Gospels, but also in Daniel, for example, and clearly all through Revelation. This language so comfortable in the mouths of the biblical writers sounds weird to us. Apocalyptic language uses bigger than life words to paint larger than life images to speak truths that are too immense for pedestrian vocabulary. It points to that which is true, that which has always been true, and the point is simple. Jesus is Lord. Even when all the evidence appears to the contrary, Jesus is Lord. To understand the meaning of these strange texts, we must first uh, consider what they don't say. Throughout history, there have been folks who have read these passages literally, pretending that it is some biblical code to be cracked. And when you do, you will know when it is that Jesus will ride the cumulus cloud back to earth. In the second century, there was a Christian named Montanus who read the scripture and was convinced that Jesus would return to a little village named Pepuza. It's in modern day Turkey. Of course, Montanus was wrong as Jesus did not return. His being wrong, however, has not deterred others from reading the text the same way. In the 1880s, followers of William Miller discerned that Jesus would return in 1884. People quit their jobs. 
I'm told some people got their suitcases and stood on their rooftops with their eyes cast heavenward. I don't know what they were going to do with the suitcases. 1885 came, but Jesus did not, not on clouds anyway. That didn't stop Tim LaHaye in the last 25 years from writing a series of books called Left Behind. They read a bit like Stephen King goes to Sunday school. There's a Left Behind movie and Left Behind t-shirts, and there's even a Left Behind board game, which I suppose gives you something to do just in case you are Left Behind. This literal read turns a promise of good news into threat. It calls for a perpetual anxiety because Jesus is coming and you don't know when and you don't want to be caught lounging on the sofa watching reruns of Law and Order when the Son of Man shows up in your living room. So keep awake. But these are not words written to scare people that the world might end. No, they are written to people who are already afraid that the way the world is will never end. It is written to those on the bottom. Language of the apocalypse promises hope to the hopeless. This is not a text to teach us to discern when Jesus will return. It teaches us who to be when he hasn't. It urges us to trust that Jesus is Lord, even when all the evidence suggests the contrary. It's a prayer that after a long journey of life that brings suffering to all and for far too many brings little else but suffering, it is a prayer that the ways of Christ should be lived. The apocalyptic voice speaks with courage that love can be trusted even in this city, even in this world right now. It is not a prayer that the world end it is a prayer that the ways of the world change. Years ago, I got a sore throat, so I wandered into a Walgreens from some throat lozenges. I was looking over the option, who knew there were 300 different kinds of lozenges. Next to me, there was a man talking to the pharmacist. I wasn't eavesdropping, but he was speaking rather loudly. This was his part of the conversation. You know, Doc, those pills, they're mighty big. You think if I break one in half, that'll be enough medicine? I see. You know, my, my wife, she tells me I'm... I'm so forgetful these days, I'd forget my own name from time to time. If I forget to take a pill now and again, will that be all right? I understand. He said, you know, I got up this morning feeling a little bit better. I did. I, I, I think I might be getting better than I, than I was. I bet I don't need a whole month's worth. Could you tell me how much a week's worth would cost? Yes, sir. Thank you. I don't know if he was talking about antacid or heart medicine, but I understood what was going on. He was among those who surround us every day whom the economy has left behind 
and he was trying to balance medicine and food, just trying to stay alive in a world that had forgotten him. I entered Walgreens wanting some throat lozenges. I left wanting Jesus to show up. Am I making any sense to you? If I understand the text, Tim LaHaye got it backwards. It is not that you should be afraid that Jesus will leave you behind. No, the promise of the gospel is that even when the world has left you behind, God will not. Christ will send his angels to gather us up from the ends of the earth and the ends of heaven. This is a promise spoken to everyone in an ICU unit. It is a promise spoken to every cold street corner that serves as a bedroom. It is a promise to every child who works the cocoa fields rather than going to school. It is spoken to every person whose heart is broken with grief. It is a promise to those who are searching for their loved ones kidnapped and for the thousands who are digging their loved ones out of Mideastern rubble. It is a promise to all whom the world has left behind that the love of Christ is coming and will leave no one behind. And that is why we join with our ancestors in praying, come Lord Jesus. Because Jesus is Lord, even in this city, even in this world, this very day, his lordship tells us who to be. We are living toward a humanity that we have never known, but a way of life that has always been true. Clarence Darrow, widely known defense attorney, was known for defending John Scopes at the Monkey Trial in Dayton, Tennessee in 1925. The year before that, right here in Chicago, he defended two young men, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. They were two brilliant University of Chicago students who murdered a 14-year-old boy, Bobby Franks, just because they thought they were smart enough to get away with it. They weren't. Darrow defended them to make his case to end the death penalty. His closing argument was eight hours long, and you thought I preached long. <laughs> In his closing argument, this is what he said. I'm not going to give you all eight hours, just, just half of it. He said, your honor stands between the past and the future. You may hang these boys, but in doing so, you will turn your face to the past. I know the future stands with me. I am pleading for life. I am pleading that we overcome cruelty with kindness and hatred with love. I am pleading for the future, for a time when hatred and cruelty will not control the human heart, when we can learn by reason and judgment and understanding and faith that all life is worth saving and that mercy is the highest attribute. I am pleading for the future. And I know the future stands with me. 
This first Advent text does not tell us when Christ will come. It reminds us who to be until he does. For Jesus says the future stands with him. So we join the voices of the early church in pleading for that future. The promise of God is that in the end, even those whom the world has left behind are not lost. As the strange old language speaks it, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his children from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. God's is a love that leaves no one behind. That has always been true. So we join with the earliest Christians pleading, come Lord Jesus. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe, help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray, amen.